Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, this is Bloomberg Daybreak for Friday, March 24th, coming up today. Janet Yellen says the government stands ready to protect the banking system. The chorus grows louder for the Fed to cut rates this year. China rolls out the welcome mat for Tim Cook and other top corporate executives. And TikTok testimony falls flat on Capitol Hill. What made hundreds of students sick at a high school on Long Island? Plus, North Korea says it has an underwater drone with a nuclear warhead. I'm Michael Barr. More ahead. I'm John Stashauer in sports. The Knicks and Nets lost. The Rangers won. Four teams advanced to the Elite Eight of the NCAA Tournament. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak. The business news you need to start your day in just one 15-minute podcast. Each morning on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good morning. I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Karen Moscow. Here are the stories we're following today. Karen, we begin with the latest on the turmoil in the banking industry. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says regulators are prepared to take more steps if needed to protect the banking system. Yellen spoke before a House Appropriations Subcommittee. The strong actions we've taken ensure that Americans' deposits are safe. Certainly, we would be prepared to take additional actions if warranted. Treasury Secretary Yellen's comments came a day after she said officials had not considered temporarily expanding insurance to all U.S. deposits. Well, Nathan, former economic policymakers are criticizing the Fed's bank stress tests in 2022 for failing to probe potential vulnerabilities in the banking system. They caught up with former Fed Governor Dan Tarullo. But I think in the in the most immediate sense, this is clearly a supervisory failure. Other factors may be uncovered as the Fed's own investigation proceeds. And Dan Tarullo, who oversaw financial regulation and supervision at the Fed, made the comments in a special Bloomberg roundtable along with former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers and Bloomberg News Head of Economics Stephanie Flanders. Hear more of that conversation a little later in the program. Well, Karen, one top banking executive says the worst of the crisis may be behind us. We spoke exclusively this morning with Standard Chartered CEO Bill Winters in Hong Kong. I hope we're through the worst. Uh, I, mean, I think there's still some some uh, some questions around business models uh, around the world. Is, mm. is, or have there been weaknesses that have been exposed in the business models of, of any of the, of the companies that have had trouble that need to be addressed at this point? Um, but it, it certainly seems that the acute phase of, of the crisis is done. Standard Chartered CEO Bill Winter says he'd be open to looking into Credit Suisse's assets if they were made available. Well, Nathan, there may be more trouble for Credit Suisse and UBS, and it's related to the war in Ukraine. The banks are among several facing a Justice Department investigation into Russian oligarchs finding help avoiding sanctions. Amy Morris has more from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. 
Sources tell Bloomberg News the Swiss banks were included in a wave of subpoenas that were sent out by the U.S. government before the crisis that resulted in UBS's takeover of Credit Suisse. DOJ is focusing on identifying which bank employees dealt with sanctioned clients and how those clients were vetted over the past several years. U.S. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco says the Justice Department is beefing up its National Security Division, saying, quote, corporate crime and national security are overlapping to a degree never seen seen before. Credit Suisse and UBS declined to comment. In Washington, I'm Amy Morris, Bloomberg Daybreak. All right, Amy, thank you. Now let's turn to the economy. The chorus is growing on the Fed not to raise rates this year, but to cut them. Let's get the latest live from Bloomberg's John Tucker. John? And a double-line capitals. Jeff Gundlach is adding his voice. He took to Twitter saying the Fed's going to be cutting interest rates substantially, and they should be doing it soon. Well, he sees the same data as everybody else, an inverted yield curve that Gunluck calls a red alert recession signal. He's at odds with the Fed chair, Jay Powell, who said this week that officials don't anticipate cutting rates. The market is pricing for easing before the end of the year. Live in New York, I'm John Tucker, Bloomberg Daybreak. All right, John, thanks. Well, China is hoping to show the world it's back in business. It's hosting a high-profile corporate summit this weekend, and some top American executives will be there. We get the latest live with Bloomberg Steve Rappaport. Steve, good morning. Good morning, Karen and Nathan. Organizers of the China Development Forum say hundreds of foreign representatives from various industries registered to attend the three-day event. Corporate A-listers like Apple CEO Tim Cook and Pfizer boss Albert Borla plan to show up, but many American companies are sitting this one out. Sources tell us that's because they want to avoid scrutiny from a newly formed House committee investigating China's Communist Party. The conference will be held fully in person this year for the first time since 2019, before the pandemic upended business for Beijing. Live in New York, I'm Steve Rappaport, Bloomberg Daybreak. Thanks, Steve. Well, the CEO of TikTok had a long day on Capitol Hill, but it might not have gotten him any closer to assuring House lawmakers that the wildly popular app is safe for national security. Shou Chu was asked repeatedly whether the Chinese Communist Party can access Americans' data. I have seen no evidence that the Chinese government has access to that data. They have never asked us. We have not provided. Well, you know what? I, have I, asked find, that. That, I find that actually preposterous. I, I have uh, I, I, looked I, I, in. I have really seen no evidence of this happening. And we got reaction to Shou Chu's testimony from Senate Intelligence Chairman Mark Warner. And I kind of feel for the CEO because he doesn't have an answer. You know, end of the day, TikTok is owned by ByteDance. ByteDance is a Chinese company. Chinese law, as of 2017, says every Chinese company, their first obligation is not shareholders or customers. Their first obligation is they got to turn over any information or any kind of ability to manipulate content to the Communist Party of China. Democratic Senator Mark Warner spoke on Bloomberg Sound on with Joe Matthew. You can catch the show weekdays 1 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, S&P futures are lower by two points. Dow futures are down 61 and Nasdaq futures are higher by 18 points. The 10-year Treasury is up 23 30 seconds now for a yield of 3.34%. The yield on the two-year is at 3.71%. Straight ahead, your latest local headlines and a check of sports. This is Bloomberg. It is 49 degrees in New York. We got a chance for some showers tonight. We'll head up to near 50. So 
pretty much where we are now. Let's take a look at some of the other stories making news in New York and around the world. Good morning, Michael Barr. Good morning, Nathan. Students became ill at a Long Island high school. About 250 students missed classes at Babylon High School on Monday. Absences were down to 110 yesterday. About 700 students go to the school. The Suffolk County Health Commissioner believes the likely cause is norovirus. There's a push in some New England states to help the police know how to deal with drivers who have autism. Connecticut launched a blue envelope program for autistic drivers three years ago. Now Rhode Island is considering the same type of marker. Joanne Quinn has a 27-year-old son with autism. She says those police sirens and lights will likely be a trigger and maybe even take off. If he says, hey, let's get out of the car, he'll get out of the car. And then he'll start talking at him. And, you know, with the lights and noise going, Pat's going to turn and walk away. I, I can't be here. I need to go somewhere else. This is sensory overload. How's that going to go over with a police officer? Meanwhile, opponents fear this kind of designation could lead to a breach of confidentiality. The Pentagon says a U.S. contractor was killed and five U.S. service members and another U.S. contractor were wounded when a suspected Iranian drone struck a facility on a coalition base in northeast Syria. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says U.S. Central Command forces retaliated with precision airstrikes. North Korea says it has tested an underwater attack drone in its latest warning to South Korea and the U.S. to stop their current military drills. According to state media, the weapon fitted with a nuclear warhead would destroy enemies with a large radioactive wave. Analysts are skeptical. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says funding for Ukraine should last for much of the year. Bloomberg's Ed Baxter has the story. Blinken before the House Appropriations Subcommittee says the billions already being approved is being closely watched in the embassy in Ukraine. He says 45 people they're overseeing. This is a series of hearings focused on the budget request for an 11% increase. Some lawmakers have worried money is being lost to corruption and that other nations are not doing enough. Blinken telling the committee the U.S. does have real burden, but notes the other nations are doing other jobs like taking in refugees. In San Francisco, I'm Ed Baxter, Bloomberg Daybreak. Global News 24 hours a day, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in over 120 countries. I'm Michael Barr. This is Bloomberg Nathan. Thanks, Michael. Time for the Bloomberg Sports Update, brought to you by Tri-State Audi. Good morning, John Stashauer. Good morning, Nathan. Not a good trip to Florida for the Knicks. They lost in Miami, followed a night later by a loss in Orlando. Knicks were without Jalen Brunson. They fell behind by 19. They did rally, but the Magic hit four late three-pointers and won 111-106. So a chance for the Nets to get to within a game of the Knicks for fifth of the East at Barclays. Nets looked like they had a victory until three turnovers in the final minute. Cleveland on a three-pointer with less than a second to go. Pulled out the win, 116-114, sweeping the home-and-home. Rangers and Hurricanes played a home-and-home, each winning on the road. Rangers in Raleigh, won 2-1 on an Adam Fox goal. NCAA tournament in overtime at the Garden. Kansas State pulled out a 98-93 win over Michigan State. The Wildcats' Marquise Noel had 19 assists. That's the most in any tournament game ever. He's a New York City native. This is probably my career high in assists, you know, ever. I had a couple games of 14, a couple games of 17 back in high school. But, you know, this one was special in front of my hometown, in front of, you know, the city, you know, that loves me. Um, I can't even put into words, you know, how, how blessed and grateful I am. Tomorrow at MSG, Kansas State versus Florida Atlantic, a surprising East Regional Final. The Owls, small school from Boca Raton, Florida, but they've got a 34-3 record. 
They upset Tennessee, 62-55. A route, then a thriller. West Regional and Vegas, UConn, a third straight blowout victory for the Huskies. 88-65 over Arkansas and Gonzaga, then topped UCLA, 76-73 on a late three-point shot. Four more games tonight, including Princeton, seeded 15th, taking on Creighton, that game in Louisville. John Stashow, Bloomberg Sports. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from coast to coast, from New York to San Francisco, Boston to Washington, D.C., nationwide on Sirius XM, the Bloomberg Business App, and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak. Good morning. I'm Nathan Hager. Markets are searching for calm on this Friday as we close out the most tumultuous two-week stretch for the U.S. and global financial systems in recent memory. A weekend of U.S. regional bank runs was followed by a weekend that saw the collapse of Credit Suisse, capped off by yet another Federal Reserve rate hike this week. It's all left many asking what went wrong, where to go from here, and should the Fed shift its priorities from inflation to financial stability? Not to mention, many are left wondering if the Fed can achieve that soft landing amid all this turmoil. We explored the bank failures and financial stress tests with some of the top voices in economics on a special episode of Bloomberg's Wall Street Week. Our David Weston hosted that roundtable with former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, former Fed Governor Dan Tarullo, and head of economics at Bloomberg News, Stephanie Flanders. Let's bring you part of that discussion. I want to start with you, Dan. Uh, You were a colleague for several years of Jay Powell. During the time you were on the Fed, you had responsibility for bank supervision. We've been told the banks were so strong we didn't have to worry about it. What happened here? We didn't think we still had banking problems. I trust that the largest banks truly are in the much better capital and liquidity position that Jay Powell referred to yesterday during the press conference. But I think there are some things that we do know. We know first that there was a significant supervisory failure somewhere along the way. Was that failure in the um, uh, San Francisco Fed's inability to identify problems of growth and maturity mismatches and the like early on? Was it a supervisory failure because of the light touch approach to supervision that the Federal Reserve Board had put in place over the last four or five years? Or... Was it a supervisory failure because the supervisors generally had not adjusted their method of assessing liquidity to take account of very high uninsured deposit concentrations coexisting with the capacity of big depositors to run at warp speed rather than the way they used to run? I also would not rule out a contributing factor being The 2018 legislation and 2019 Fed regulation, both of which deregulated banks of under 700, well, the regulation banks of under $700 billion in assets, the legislation banks of under 250. But I think in the, in the most immediate sense, this is clearly a supervisory failure. 
other factors may be uncovered as the Fed's own investigation proceeds. So, so, Larry, let's put you back at the Treasury or, for that matter, at the White House. If you were looking at this situation, what questions would you be asking to make sure you understood the possible ramifications of what we've seen so far in a broader financial context? Before I answer, before I answer that hypothetical, let me uh, put a question to my friend uh, Dan, who I'll just say I think did an enormous amount to strengthen our financial system during his time at uh, the Fed. Dan, I've heard it said, and I don't know, that even in 2022, the Fed stress tests that were applied to the largest banks did not include an analysis of the stress from a major interest rate hike. If that's true, that seems kind of bizarre from the point of view of the world of early 2022, when it certainly many people, certainly me on David's uh, show, were emphasizing that there was likely to need to be very substantial increases in interest rates. Can you say something? And if the stress tests weren't considering increases in interest rates, then perhaps the exempting of Silicon Valley Bank from the stress tests was not central to understanding the problem. Can you say something about interest rate hikes and Fed stress tests? Sure. Um, so first off, I, I think, Larry, I agree with the the uh, statement you made toward the end of your question, which is, I act, if if Silicon Valley had been in last year's stress test for real rather than its dress rehearsal, I don't think it would have made much difference for precisely the reason you say, that they weren't stressing the things that were the SVB vulnerabilities. With respect to stress testing generally, over again, over the last five or six years, the stress test has become eminently predictable. The scenario that's used is now a single scenario, which is essentially a variant on the very first one we put in some years ago that is a severe, a quite severe recession. Um, but it follows the basic pattern of the scenario that was developed when we began doing the annual stress test. The um, scenario, of course, includes a reduction in interest rates because of the uh, hypothesis of a recession and the Fed's reaction. When I was at the Fed, we were using also an alternative scenario. It's called the, the adverse rather than severely adverse scenario. And we use that scenario to test things other than the prototype of the severe recession. And indeed, we used it at least one year and I think a couple of years to test what would happen with unusual changes in interest rates, which were not then anticipated. So to some degree, the answer to your question is, like supervision generally, the stress test has become less rigorous over time. And I think, more importantly, it's become too predictable. And the whole purpose of a stress test is that you're trying to stress against the unanticipated, not the anticipated. At the risk of perhaps being too tough on your former colleagues at, uh, at the Fed, you talk about predictable versus unpredictable. I would argue that at a very minimum, the stress tests ought to consider what is the major risk of their moment. When you were at the Fed, 
uh, Dan, in that period, I think it was reasonable to think that the major risk was a tilt towards recession and deflation. But I don't see how anybody last spring could have thought that the major risk was anything other than a spike in interest rates. So a process that didn't consider as a risk seems to me to be a profoundly problematic uh, process. It seems almost like the supervisors were mailing it in. Is there a defense? I would say first, um, this is not by way of defense or certainly not an apologia, but just a bit of explanation. It's, it's quite likely that the scenario development was, was taking place in the latter part of 2021, um, if it was going to be the 2022 stress test. And of course, this is the period in which the FOMC was still figuring out that the inflation problem was not transitory. But I, I don't want to use that as a kind of exculpation of uh, the supervisors. Second thing to say is it, it's not the supervisors, meaning the staff, who are making the policy decisions as to what kind of stress test to have, whether to have multiple scenarios. That's a decision of the Board of Governors. Uh, and so it rests with them. Uh, and the and, and I, I but I agree with the gravamen of your remarks, which is not to have tried to think about something other than the same scenario is a failure of supervision in and of itself. Stephanie, you've worked at the Treasury sure. of the United States. You also have covered financial markets and other business issues over in Europe for a good long time. One thing we're hearing from both Larry and Dan is rates were going up. And they weren't just going up here. They're going up over in Europe as well. Was what we're seeing right now in the banking system, maybe not the specifics of Silicon Valley Bank, but was something like that almost inevitable? After we pumped so much money into the system and start taking it out, there's going to be stress, real stress, and there's going to be some failure. Yeah, and I, I wish I was, I was closer to you guys because I knew I was going to struggle to get a word in with you too. But uh, I think in, the, in this conversation, I think it is important when we're thinking about what the implications are, you know, you have to distinguish what is an outlier about not just Silicon Valley Bank, but others that have got into trouble in this episode. What is fundamentally uh, a regulatory stupidity, you know, a very traditional problem, the interest rate risk that was just hiding in plain sight? Uh, and what is a genuinely new issue which was not being fully taken into account by anyone looking at the, the, the risks. And I think when, when you look at something like Silicon Valley Bank, you know, clearly it was an outlier in the speed with which deposits had been built up, in its massive exposure to unex uninsured deposits and reliance on that um, for funding. I hope it was an outlier in not having a chief risk officer for nine months, which was an extraordinary um, state of affairs. What was, but what was very traditional about this, and as, as the discussion with Larry and Dan is, is suggesting, was that you know, right here was a massive interest rate risk that was, whether or not it was in the stress test, was something that central banks should have been thinking very hard about. And I think it was sort of striking that we had a lot of the debate around this. What are the hidden risks? You know, all the conversations that you will have had, David, when you ask regulators what's keeping you up at night, they would always talk about private equity. They'd talk about non-bank shadow banking has been the thing that people were, you know, was, the, was this worry for all these years. And in fact, it was the most obvious problem sitting on bank balance sheets 
as a direct result of monetary policy actions by central banks that has actually caused this issue. I would just say, though, one of the reasons maybe they weren't looking at that so closely, although I'd be interested to know what Dan and, and Larry think about this, you know, there is an element of this which is new, and we see in the speed with which deposits left these institutions, and that's the, the non-stickiness of those deposits. And I think, you know, one of the things that regulators were thinking when they looked, considered interest rate risk, potentially, was that there was a sort of um, self, a, a self-hedging mechanism um, in a bank of the fact that deposits would be slow to move if they weren't being paid the higher interest rates. That is no longer the case. And I think that probably does have longer-term implications for, for regulation and potentially longer-term implications for how much we insure deposits. We had a decision from the Fed this week to raise another 25 basis points. Some people had been urging that actually they just hold, given the difficulties with banking. At the same time, he, Jay Powell, admitted that there's more uncertainty about the extent to which what's already happened with financial conditions may have essentially imposed a further rate hike already. Did they get it right, Dan, from your point of view? Did Jay Powell get it right? Market expectations helped them. They, they had sort of converged around 25 basis points, and so then it became a communication issue. He said quite explicitly, it's too soon to tell how monetary policy should respond to the anticipated credit tightening. But I actually think their actions yesterday were a fairly significant response. I mean, everybody, three or four weeks ago, people were anticipating a 50 basis point increase. We got 25. Three or four weeks ago, we thought we might see the SEP suggest uh, a, a ceiling of 5.75 or 6% interest. And now we're back to exactly where they were in December, uh, last December when they did the last SEP. Uh, and of course, they changed the language on the, uh, the, what, what, the forward guidance type language. Instead of ongoing increases, we're back to may have some firming. And of course, some people are reading that as, the end or close to the end of the of the uh, tightening cycle. So I actually thought that um, they were conveying uh, more of a, an assessment of the impact than Chair Powell suggested in his remarks yesterday. I think what they did was uh, broadly appropriate. It was a time for temporizing because there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of cards are going to be turned over in uh, the next uh, several months. And the question then was, does temporizing mean stopping all rate increases? And I think if they had done that, it would have sent actually a signal that they were very highly alarmed and would have been a mistake. Whether to continue precisely on the path uh, that they were on before these banking concerns arose, I think that would have seemed almost oblivious to what was a potentially gathering storm. And so I think, as Dan suggests, that a middle ground uh, path was right. And it was particularly right if the policy is going to be signaling in a clear way that uh, even if your bank fails, you're going to be a depositor as well. But yes, I think what they did was broadly appropriate, particularly if we can be sending reasonably strong signals of confidence in the system. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Today, your morning brief on the stories making news from Wall Street to Washington and beyond. 
Look for us on your podcast feed at 6 a.m. Eastern each morning on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning starting at 5 a.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg 1130 in New York, Bloomberg 991 in Washington, Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, and Bloomberg 960 in San Francisco. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Plus, listen coast to coast on the Bloomberg Business app, Sirius XM Channel 119, the iHeartRadio app, and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Karen Moscow. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day right here on Bloomberg Daybreak. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.